Hi there, and thanks for listening to Shim Satira's podcast series, Sounds Like Folk. My name is Joanne Barry, and I am the repertory director with the National Folk Theatre at Shim Satira. My involvement with Shimsa began as a nine-year-old child and I've been working with the company as a performer, teacher and all-round folky for the last 15 years. We welcome in the beginnings of spring and hope for a brighter year as we continue to honour the creative impulse to swap our stories and engage with our audience. This podcast honours and celebrates the tradition of Bohan Tiacht, or gathering together, allowing a window into Shimsa Tira, which itself was born from a coming together of like-minded people, a place where ideas and stories are celebrated. Delighted to mark the beginnings of spring with the wonderful Aoife Spillan Hinks, a director who works in Ireland and the United States. Aoife is the founder and lead artist of the literary department at Axis Ballymun in Dublin and also trained as a director on the Rough Magic Seeds programme. She has taught directing in NUI Galway's MA programme and acting at the Gaty School of Acting, the Lear Academy and the Conservatoire at TU Dublin. She is also the co-founder of Then This Theatre. Enjoy the chat. So today's uh, Sounds Like Folk guest is the wonderful Aoife Spillan Hinks. Um, delighted to see uh, you on uh, on video and soon maybe in person, who knows? Yes. <laughs> Even we're on the morning after uh, restrictions have been lifted. So here's to lots more collaborations and lots more happenings and theatre and real life stuff. But today we're going to talk about and talk to you about your work. Um, we've worked together in a very, very small way, but we'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, maybe uh, for those people that maybe don't know who you are, Aoife, you might just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so so I'm Aoife Spillan-Hinks and I am a theatre and opera director. Um, I am a dramaturg and collaborator with people who are creating new work. Um, and I'm also the founder and the lead artist of the literary department at Axis Arts Centre in Ballymun up in up, up here in Dublin. Brilliant. God, you're a busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And we met uh, a long time ago, I think, kind of in um, in Dublin, actually, as part of Michael Keegan Dolan's workshops, isn't that correct? Yeah, that was 2009. Oh my God. <laughs> and we're still doing it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember you very well. And obviously, uh, people know from your accent that you weren't born in Ireland, but you've been living here a long time. Yeah, this is my 16th year here. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. I just lo would love to ask on that point about, you know, I presume you would have done some work in the arts in the States and now you're working in the arts in Ireland. Is it the same or are there, you know, uh, in terms of, I suppose I'm thinking about it in terms of folk as well and the, and the rich creative landscape that is in Ireland, you know, that's, that seems to always be giving us um, inspiration and, and information about, about different things. Is that very different in the States? Was it your experience that was very different? Gosh, I mean, it's it's such a huge question. Mm. Um, and I will say, I, I suppose, uh, one thing that will become evident is that I, when I answer anything, about seven different things happen. Yes. So my apologies <laughs> in advance for all this, the, the tendrils off of one <laughs> sentence. But there's a lot of ways to answer that. Mm. One thing that I will say is, although I would be quite experienced as an audience member in the States, because of how early in my career I left hmm. my knowledge of the practice of making theater because I, I, I moved here when I was 22 okay so um, it was right after college so I've done some professional work in the states hmm. um, largely with one theater company in Pittsburgh um, but, but but anyway I mean I suppose there are a couple of big things that one would talk about when you're comparing theater work and perhaps creative work and mm -hmm. perhaps the role of culture and how that might relate to identity or traditional culture however one might define that or folk mm -hmm. culture so one thing is right um I know that we talk a lot about the difficulties of being an artist in terms of finance in terms of lots of different things when we're talking about work in this country mm. um and I know that we you know we'll often talk about oh if you go to Poland, if you go to Germany, if you go to these places where everyone goes to the opera or every, you know, the tickets, the theater tickets are so cheap because, and, and I know there's always 
a better thing that we should be looking to and striving for and everything else. Sure. But for me, say, when I take a taxi and the taxi driver here asks me what I do, and when I say I'm a theater director or a theater and opera director, the number of times that they go on to tell me about the last show they saw. Right. Or about their involvement in theater. Okay. Um, that's something, and this isn't a criticism on American taxi drivers, it's sure. a broader criticism of American society, mm. that I think there's a way, even though it's deeply imperfect in this country, of course, um, we always must look for better, there is a way in which people of very various kinds take culture and the the um, consumption of culture for granted in a really wonderful and vital way here. Yes, yes. So the um, engagement is, is, is uh, yeah. And, and I wonder, is that from, you know, a, a very young age, you know, having grown up in, in a culture where there's such a celebration as there is in the States too, but I suppose this is a smaller, a smaller country, a smaller pot. There's such a celebration of writing and music and song that may have been, in everyone's house in some way from a very young age. Absolutely, you know, and sometimes I think about the way in which people talk about, say, public figures in Ireland and the kinds of people who might be on the radio shows or who people might be on Twitter making jokes about or whatever, that it's as easily a fiction writer or a poet or a musician or an actor or playwright as it is a political figure or yeah. some or a TV star or whatever else. And there's and I think that the size of the country is an interesting element of, of course, of so many conversations about Irish culture, Irish life. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting, very rich, very positive in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are elements, I mean, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but things that I would touch on, you know, I think there are, there are aspects of, say, the educational system, mm. um, the centrality of poetry, which, and, and the way in which people talk about memorizing poetry, the way that, that an ordinary person um, can, can recite a poem that they love from school or from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and again, none of this is to idealize like, oh, Ireland, and the, it's not mm. about that, no. but it's actually about very concrete things that are in place, might not be perfect, might be ways to stretch and push the, the way in which education is run, structured, whatever else, who, who is in the curriculum, absolutely great. Mm -hmm. But those component parts are incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you've got to get to, and again, it's imperfect here, but it exists, the mm -hmm. Arts Council, the profound amount of money that exists in comparison to um, arts funding, certainly governmental arts funding in the States. Yes. Um, so, you know, I mean, and uh, geez, I mean, there's so many other things to say, and, and I'm sort of on the edge of saying so many things <laughs> yeah. that feel like that. Am I am I qualified? Am I am I you know uh, well spoken enough to to touch on them? Um, but you know, one thing I suppose this is a very very um, workday difference between mm. the states and and and, uh, and Ireland is um, over in the states there is a very strong presence of actors' equity. Yes. So one of the big experiences that I've had different over there when I've directed there is the incredible presence of the structure of enforced break times, right. enforced end times of work sessions at the end of the day and stuff like that. Um, right. And that's something that I'm, I find very exciting about within yes. the industry, yes. how things can be improved here yes. by a greater trade union presence sure, for, um, sure. for yeah. artists of all kinds. Yeah. yeah, great. And just to go back there, um, you mentioned education, and I suppose this is something that I'm experiencing now because of how I was educated and how my children are being educated. You know, this you mentioned this learning of poetry off by heart and yeah. like, Again, my kids are at the very beginnings of their education, but it, it seems to me that it, perhaps it's not something that's done anymore. We, my English teacher, in who I will always remember from secondary school, she would say, you just learn the poem. Even if you don't know anything else in the exam, you have this poem. Mm. So you know this poem. And if we were to go back to when you were in school in the States and then your, your, your journey into the arts, was it always going to be the arts for you? Was that the kind of household you grew up in? 
Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I suppose there's a couple of aspects to answering so emphatically that question. With mm. the, yeah, completely. One of them is, um, you know, I have three parents. I have a stepfather who's been in my life for a very long time. Um, and then I have my mother and my father. All of them have incredibly uh, strong uh, influences on my life. All of them, or one could say, uh, let's say none of them have had conventional work lives okay. um, where that I've had um, it, it, more than one for a, a short period of time ever be going to a nine to five job. Okay. Um, their lives have always been comprised of making making lives, making uh, the utility payments and everything else out of different kinds of jobs, which connected in with what they were, what they might've been trained in or what they, what skills they had developed. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, so I didn't grow up with a sense of what a normal job was. Sure. And I, and I mean that in terms of uh, that there's a way you should be in your right. personal life. Right. Um, I encountered theater very early in my life, New Haven, Connecticut, where I grew up. Um, has been, was before I was born, is now a place that is full of exciting um, performance. Um, there's the Yale School of Drama, which is there. We're very close to New York City. We're not that far from Boston, but especially the relationship with New York is important. Um, and so there was all that going on. And then also, I went to a public school that was full of all the different kinds of kids uh, from all the different kinds of adults who lived in New Haven, which mm -hmm. is an incredibly diverse and complicated and interesting place. And we happened to have a dance and drama program mm -hmm. from our, and music program from kindergarten, so age five. Wow. And we, Marianne, or Marion and uh, Sylvia, Miss Pet, um, our two, our music and our dance and drama teachers came in a couple of times a week, we sang songs, we did improv games, Brilliant. we danced, and every single child got up every year and sang a song in our shows. And there was never a sense of who the star was. So all of this stuff to say, first of all, this school was not, it was not a posh school with, a, with an elite performance program. The fundamentals of this performance program were that everybody did it and everybody was as equally entitled and qualified to do mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So all of us took for granted that we got up and sang songs and mm -hmm. did dances, whatever mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. um, when I was about seven, um, I stated that my reason for being on earth was mm -hmm. to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And the actor uh, focus was there um, up until I was 17. Okay. Um, I did, you know, summer programs and I did stuff in school and I started scanning the papers, the local papers for auditions for, you know, what we'd call in, in the States community theater productions yes. and obviously here we'd call amateur dramatics. Um, so I started doing those. And, um, and then again, in the wonderful public school system in, uh, in my area, there was this conservatory high school program that you could audition to get into um, was free. It was paid for by your school system and it pulled kids from all the areas. So you got to meet other kids um, from different places um, within about an hour's reach who were also interested in whatever your art form was. And from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Thursday, we would train in our, in our department. Um, so that was unbelievable mm -hmm. for the social aspect of course for literally developing as an artist yes. um for having that kind of understanding of being in a context when you're 14 15 16 17 18 where you're going in and figuring out you know how to articulate something or greek tragedy or whatever else and that other people your age you know unlike the kids in normal school didn't think you were weird or deeply <laughs> yes. cool, yes. you know yeah <laughs> and it, it was during that program that when I was 17, the beginning of my seven, my senior year, so my final year of high school, and the head of the department said, you're a director. And she said, instead of, you know, giving you a couple of big roles, as the seniors would have had in the, in the productions over the year, um, you're going to assist and direct all the projects. Wow. And the minute she said it, the minute she said you're a director, I was like, yeah. Okay. 
Um, and it's so funny, I said it to her a few years ago, Ingrid, she's still, Ingrid Schaefer is still the head of the department uh, at Educational Center for the Arts, theater department, and she doesn't remember it, because of course, that's the kind of thing she does all the time. Sure, sure. You know? yeah. changing, ch changing young people's lives all the yes, time, Yes, right? indeed, indeed. And was so there anyway, any part of you, I know you said, oh yeah, you know, she was right, but was there any part of you that was a little bit disappointed that you that she didn't think you were, you were a born actor, you know what I mean? Um, you know what, to be honest, no. Yeah, you probably um, knew yourself, yeah. Yeah, and it was something that I really started to know when I started to direct my own work in college. When I compared what it was like for me to direct and the way that time stopped charting as normal mm. um, versus what it was like to act, it was very clear to me which was my thing great awesome um and then uh to talk a little bit about i suppose about uh, how we came to work together last summer on a on a very very small uh, research and development uh week together in partnership with chimsa and looking at possibilities between ourselves i and o and the abbey and yourself and um, how was that experience for you in Kerry and that whole uh, immersion into the folk world, which I'm sure you were familiar with it in, in a way anyways, but as you know, most people say, oh yeah, I think I think I know what folk theatre is. Yeah. But how was the experience for you coming down? And and, and I mean, we, we thoroughly enjoyed it and wanted more, you know, um, so hopefully that will happen. Yeah, well, and hopefully it will. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, have, I have faith that it will yeah um it was yeah i mean it was it was incredible um you know as 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 you know uh my irish family is from Kerry, right. um and so whenever i go down there and the idea of being able to go down to work there um and be able to work in in the folk theater mm -hmm. uh was meant a lot to me in a lot of ways mm -hmm. um but also I suppose there were so many rich aspects of that week. Mm. One of them was, and I think this is one of the things that we all struggled with and were stimulated by and whatever else was the question of who was leading. True. Week, you know, because yeah. that was, you know, it, it just sort of on a nuts and bolts level. One thing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is mm. in some ways I was the de facto leader of that process, but in other ways I found you know, what is leadership in a process like this where mm. it's not useful for me to impose too quickly, um, to try to say, okay, well, this is what we're doing based on what I've observed, you know? And, yeah, yeah. And I, and I found, and I think we all kind of walked away from that week saying, actually, what we've begun to find in this week is a way of working and a common mm. ground yes. rather than have gotten into a lot of the working. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, which is quite um, indicative of the way we would work, I suppose, yeah. you know, together. We've we've um, worked together for a long time. And yes, Jonathan is the artistic director, but there's always that freedom to, mm. you know, kind of take the take the conch for a while and, and, and you know, um, because I suppose we were lucky in the week that we had together too, that everyone was so experienced and had so much to bring, you know, yeah. to the process. Absolutely. And everyone was bringing their own traditions mm. and their own cultural contexts and touchstones and professional contexts and touchstones. And some of those overlapped and some of them were different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, both within yeah. each person and between people. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my life um, through a lot of luck encountering a lot of folk, yes. um, you know, including my undergrad degree ended up being in folklore mythology. Mm. And, you know, whenever I tell people that people say, oh, you know, what's your favorite myth? What's your favorite? Okay. Like, uh, like, uh, okay, sure, <laughs> I could talk to you about that. Um, but actually, the, the things that I learned that were most important there were not so much about this story or this cultural uh, trope or whatever else, mm -hmm. but were some principles such as one of the foundational ones that we first learned in our first introductory survey course to 
the practice of folkloristics of gathering information mm. and assessing it or presenting it was don't presume you get it mm. good advice um, you know and i think that's fun foundational to any collaboration and certainly to that week and I think that was there and that was evident with everybody, especially yourself in how you led the week and, you know, what people what people um, brought to it. Because, you know, we, we joke and shame say, you know, what is folk? And it's like, well, there is no way to answer that question. You know, there's no way to define. There's the shame brand of folk, we should call it. But everyone brought those kind of indescribable, you know, innate folk uh, personal elements to the week mm, you yes. know and I think that's why and we talk about humility and we talked about kind you know all of those things fed in we were so lucky I mean I let we left that week kind of going that was amazing it happened yeah. in the middle of a pandemic yeah. we were so lucky that there was you know the personalities in the room were so were so positive and so open to sharing and 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 open to play you know yeah. which is as important too and I think what we're trying to what we're trying to to explore and research and develop will be exciting in whatever you know shape or form it it comes out in the end. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's it's something that I feel is vitally important for artists in general, and indeed for people in general, but especially for those of us engaged in creative processes. Mm-hmm. we have been so conditioned to to evaluate our own worth based on what we produce based on how what we produced is evaluated by certain arbiters of quality or worth or whatever else yes and while of course we need to pull up our pull up our big girl pants and in, and engage <laughs> with those realities yes on the other hand we must always find a way to cultivate within ourselves and within our creative relationships a willingness to be open to the thing not working out as planned mm. or or not being a thing at all yes but having engaged in the process thing. exactly yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's very easy for someone to say, oh, you know, artists talk so much about process, you know, um, but but at the end of the day, you know, if you don't make something, it's not it's it's not valid or it's not worthy or it's not important. And I really disagree with that. I think, you know, I think that it ha- you have to be allowed to, to you know, follow a path. Yeah get to the end of your path I won't use the word journey but the end of your path (laughs) and you say okay this is not where I want to be I want to be over there you know or I want to do it this way and I think um I'm hoping that this um interview and chat will go um out and I just would love to ask you as a female in the arts and this isn't you know about men bashing or anything like that but you know I suppose it's something that as I've gotten older it's important to be able to talk about working as a woman in the arts, especially as a director, I think. Has it been, has it always been, you know, a good experience for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And obviously, you know, it's a question that, you know, we've been having the question about being a woman in any field Mm. and and the vulnerabilities of even walking down the road. Mm. Um, And we've also talked more particularly, especially in the last six years, about being a woman working in theater Mm. um and you know I mean there are parts of it where I could talk about I you know thinking now as an older um working artist thinking back on my earlier years of being in the professional realm you know there without naming names you know I I did experience (laughs) say the really cut and dry Sure. Uh, sexual harassment uh, that with with certain theaters or contexts mm-hmm. were considered par for the course um, and I considered them par for the course. Yeah. And I wish I could. You know, I wish I could go back and talk to that self and yes. just literally say, like, that's not good enough. Yeah. Don't take it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And you don't have to laugh along. You don't have to be complicit and yes. you don't have to kind of hate yourself for being complicit, even though yeah. you don't hate the people. I know. Anyway, I know. 
so, so there, you know, there, there is, or especially was yes. um, that kind of cut and dry, like you could point to that and say, that's not okay. Sure. Um, I have had the sense, and as I said, I haven't worked extensively in the States and I've never had a problem working as a female director in the States, um, just as I've not had a huge problem with it here. But I remember when I first moved here, having a strong sense that it, that this place it didn't feel as fraught to have a female gender and sure. the place of a director, especially mm. because there were so many prominent directors in Ireland and are now who are yes. female. Exactly. Um, I think part of the biggest, you know, when I think about being a woman who directs, it's less about being a female director and more about reckoning with myself mm. and how I've understood being a woman or being myself within my broader yes. identity yes um because a lot of that has had a knock-on effect on how I relate to my work sure um or say the fact that and this isn't a, this isn't necessarily a gendered thing but when I looked at the way in which certain directors of either gender asserted their position in the room or their mm. authority in the room mm. or their authority on say what a line means or what a what a moment should look like mm. what i saw as a younger director were people being incredibly forthright in exactly what they wanted right and how they spoke to actors or collaborators or how they spoke about their work and i remember feeling incredibly crushed under the weight of needing to figure out how to be that kind of person yes. when I wasn't. There are ways in which I, I will, uh, one of, um, a mentor, a complicated mentor of mine um, from my early career, who was not ideal in his behavior towards me as a young woman always, uh, said something to me, which I found useful, but now thinking back, I don't think was so useful. He said, you, you sit so much on the fence that you have splinters in your arse. Oh. Um, and in the way, okay, that's a bracing, you know, yeah. provocation. Go get him. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, what he actually failed to understand or appreciate about me was not that I was indecisive and without a perspective, hmm. but which was, but was that I've, I've never been great at the binary. Yes. Um, and I've never been great at the um this is what this means sure and so the work is often it's not about me saying i want this it's about me saying i'm noticing this i'm hearing this i'm observing this from what's coming off of the <clears throat> rehearsal space stage or off of the text or whatever the context is of creation mm -hmm. and it's it's taken me a really long time and I do think this is tied into gender, although I don't think it's an inherently female thing, but you know, I, I've heard people talk about it in the context of something which might be a maternal thing, although again, problematic word when we're talking, you know, defaulting to that with women. I recently uh, somebody said, and this actually, I haven't spoken about this with him. So if he hears this, we can talk. But I was telling him how I struggle with this, the opera of mine that just opened. Um, I'm really glad that I wear a mask in, in the audience because I'm mouthing the whole thing. And he said, oh, like the mom, you can't let go of your children. You're the stage mom. And he was joking. And actually, you know what? I've been meaning to send him an email. He's a young artist. He didn't mean anything bad by it. Sure. But, you know, it actually, the minute he said it, it really, it kind of, it made my night a bit sour because I went, do you think that's what I am? Mm. Do you think that because I don't say this is this and that is that, that I'm a mom mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with being a mom, Yeah, but that's yeah. not what my job is here. Sure. Sure. And I and, think, you yeah. know, what you said, what your, what your mentor said to you about sitting on the fence, sometimes, uh, you know, I think I definitely suffer from that, but I think oftentimes it's such a positive thing, uh, you know, because you can, you can sit back. Yeah. You know, and allow stuff to happen. Yes. Serve stuff. You know, when I interviewed Michael Keegan Dolan in the first series of this, he would say, I, I just go in and create the atmosphere. Yes. And then I let stuff happen. 
and I watch and I, you know, and I think that atmosphere word is wonderful. Has there been, has there been a stick out moment for you, Aoife, that has been really, really challenging for you as a director or, or that you thought to yourself, okay, I, I'm not sure what to do here. And, but it's taught you something really important. <laughs> so there's a couple of things. Um, there's one overriding challenge that I've had, um, which I haven't actually talked about a huge amount uh, publicly. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge public figure, but you know, on the odd podcast or whatever, <laughs> something I haven't talked about a huge amount um, is my relationship with myself. Um, I think one of the huge challenges for me is, um, you know, profound history of anxiety um, mm. that has very easily taken over my emotional state and therefore my ability to engage with certain aspects of a job that needs doing. Sure. Um, and it's a lot of that can be tied into what we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, so I can think of certain examples and actually, um, you know, one person who's been a very important mentor to me, uh, who's not that other mentor. So just to be clear, they're both male, um, but but this is a different mentor who I will name um, is Alan Stanford. Okay, great. Um, you know, Alan is somebody who, yeah, has been, has been a, a dear friend of mine and a dear mentor of mine for years. And he actually has had a couple of gruff words for me, which were beneficent gruff words though. One of them was, there are two that I can remember, although there have been many, and they're both about my emotions having overcome me. And now I don't think emotions are a bad thing. Sure. So two examples, which I absolutely love, and they're challenging moments where actually the, the bottom line was cop yourself on. Okay. One of them was, um, a little over 10 years ago, um, I directed a production of uh, the Yellow Wallpaper. It's an adaptation of a novella um, that Maeve Fitzgerald and Tanya Dean and I adapted and Maeve performed and I mm -hmm. directed. Mm -hmm. And um, I had this thing where like every opening night that I ever like had of my work, I just had a meltdown. I'm never going to work again. I can't go out there. They hated it. I hate myself. Da, da, da. And Alan had seen this a few times and he was at that opening night. Okay. And I said, Alan, I can't go out there. I can't. I just, they hate it. I hate myself. And like, no one hated it, okay? Or I'm sure someone did, but it was not the overriding response I was receiving. And he just looked at me and he said, get yourself together and go do your job, which is to meet your public. And it was loving toughness. Sure. Than, and the same thing kind of happened about four or five years later when I was over in Pittsburgh where Alan now lives. And he's the reason I've worked with this company, Picked, in Pittsburgh. And we were working on a production of Sharon's Grave. Okay. Wonderful John B. Keene. Yes. Um, and again, I was having all my emotions and everything. And I was sitting in his car and, um, and I was crying and talking about all the impossible problems and the, how they weren't my fault of everything. And he said, again, he said, you need to stop crying and do your job. And again, it was harsh but it was, it was the kindness of clarity of the reason yeah. I say all of this is that it is something that I have been able to do, which is to stop crying and do my job. Sure. And that's been a result of a number of things, including simply growing older. Mm. Um, also medication, which I've never said in public, mm. um, but is um, an antidepressant, which the first time I took it, I went, oh, is this how people get to live normally oh wow and so that's that's, that's been something that has changed my life mm -hmm. and has made my work possible yes um and sometimes it's so good to have somebody like that in your life that you can trust that will go listen yes cop on to yourself yes and from a place of love but a place of listen yeah. you know yeah. there's and a they're point. right you know some of the time it, we are our own worst enemies and we do need to cop onto ourselves yeah and just you know just do it you know because as you say about that emotional and 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 to repeat what you said nothing wrong with that but oftentimes we invest so much of ourselves in our work and yes. it's tied up in in many different emotions you know and maybe what you're going through that particular week or that particular month but also other things because I think the arts <clears throat> I think my brother is a musician and oftentimes I say to him you know it's hard for you because you are the product yes 
So you as a person are the product. And that's a tough thing to take on if someone says, actually, no, I don't want you for that job or no, I don't think you can play that the way I want you to play it. Because it's not just, you know, the job that that's taking criticism, criticism, it's the person. Oh, absolutely. And this was something, you know, just before the pandemic, 2019 was a very fraught year for me professionally. I did some stuff that I was proud of and I did some stuff that I found very draining and and difficult. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things that I was feeling was I have to reconnect with what the heck that little kid Mm -hmm. loved Mm -hmm. who originally wanted to do all of this because I've forgotten that. Yeah. And if you don't know that, you know, the external validation or payment or anything else is not going to be sufficient to sustain you yes you know yeah Um, totally has there has there you know been positive things for you from from this pause that we've had to do I mean obviously the world the country and the world has gone through this pandemic and and hopefully we're getting to the end of it yeah you know it's it's a it's a really funny one because obviously the pandemic has been catastrophic Mm. for the world and so much so such a huge majority of the world has had none of the cushions that I or you you know and and whomever else who especially people just we know have had so I always say anything about of course within that context um and the immense loss that has occurred over the last two years um but you know that quiet that you talk about Mm. was incredibly important for me um, you know, I'm someone who had already become, come to understand myself as an intro, introvert mm. and having the ability to have that much quiet and that time on my own, mm. um, was, was a real blessing. Mm. Um, I realized how much of the last 10 or 15 years before that I had had this wish that the world could just pause for a little bit because it felt like I just needed a little bit of time to just gather myself again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, of course, I never would have asked for the pause that we got. No, no. I I understand what you mean. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. And then it also allowed me, and I think a lot of us, and, and again, I'll just state another piece of my privilege. I did, I didn't have kids at home who I had Mm -hmm. to look after. I had to buy myself and some cats and my husband, Um, but he didn't need looking after and the cats were the cats. But (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I had so much space and time yes. for myself. Yeah. And I spent a lot of that time um, listening and reading, listening to a lot of podcasts, audiobooks, get getting to know a lot of visual artists and their practices, starting to think about my relationship with myself creatively as as an artist. And yeah. how do I dip my fingers into the pool of the things which I am thinking about and asking and the responses I'm having to things Mm. in a gentle way, that word gentle has become more and more important. Mm. Um, That I'm not bash, I wasn't bashing up against the world. You weren't encountering uh, conversations with the dreaded question, what are you up to next? Yes. That we all all hate so much because no one was up to anything next. And you know what? That was terrible on the one hand, but there yeah. was a way in which it was a, a comfort for a bit. Yeah, sure. And, and then also, um, it was out of this time that I had the conversation with Mark O'Brien, who at the time was running Axis, mm-hmm. in which he, you know, acting as Axis and as Mark and as Neve now, who runs Axis now, is constantly thinking of the artists in the community that access serves so i am a local artist to access asking what can access do for you and i finally i never took enough time to prepare for those kinds of meetings but i had time <laughs> so in the hour before mark and i hopped on that zoom where he asked me that question i actually asked myself that question wonderful and you know what i said to myself i said my dream is to be able to work with writers and creators and have that space and time to mm. do that mm. um and I said to him, you know what, Mike, can I tell you a dream? And he said, yeah. And I said, I would love to figure out a way to found a literary department at Access. 
And during normal times, they wouldn't have had the bandwidth, the resources, the anything, because they'd be producing and hosting and running everything that Access does. But at the moment, he said, okay. Wonderful. It was a six-month experiment, and it's continued. And, you know, who knows how long we'll have the resources or whatever else, but I'm mindful. Um, and, and, And being able to work with that density of artists, that diversity of artists, at different stages in their careers, yeah. in the individual processes, in all of those things, um, amongst many other things, what it has allowed me to do, and I hope that this doesn't sound too flippin' Brene Brown or Oprah or whatever else, although, <laughs> listen, if I could be anything like Brene Brown or Oprah, so yes. be it. Amen. <laughs> but you know, one thing that it did, and I think this is this goes back to what we were talking about with our week of collaboration um, down in Shimsa, um, and at the heart of so much of what I think is important in the work that we can all do is um, working with that many artists who are different kinds of artists, different kinds of forms, different kinds of writing, people who previously I might have liked more or less in their work, and that really was irrelevant to my work with them, yes. was in order to do that kind of work where we would do sessions where I would talk about what their work or give them space to talk about whatever was going on for them, mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to figure out how to love every single one of those artists. Wow. And I don't say that in some sort of like, I, you know, can I be amazing in front of you? Like that's not sure, what I mean. Sure. But I mean, in order to do that kind of work, we all have to find a way to love that other person in front of us. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about uh, your opera work, um, especially your relationship with the INO, which is very exciting. And how how did that all come about, Aoife? Oh my lord! Well, like. So, so first I'll just kind of say as a, as, a, as a very brief premise, like music has always been a part of my life. Like I yeah. started playing piano when I was five. Okay. Um, like, you know, my mother, my stepfather, both would be deep lovers of opera. So mm-hmm. opera was kind of around and I always wanted to direct opera. Okay. Um, and it was... And I even remember when I applied to the Rough Magic Seeds program, you know, which is their wonderful apprenticeship program that I did, geez years and years ago yes. around the time when we first met okay um and in the in the interview that I did for them you know they asked that one of the questions is like what would be the show that you would like no budget you know budget is no issue or whatever okay and I said two things I actually can't remember what the other one was but <laughs> one of the answers was Don Giovanni the, the oh, opera yeah. and like you know so that was like 15 years ago or we're nearly at this stage yeah so anyway how did it start I always wanted to, and I was really, I didn't feel confident enough to broach it myself, I suppose, which mm-hmm. I wish I could say something differently, but the very kind Michael Barker Caven mm-hmm. at um, the Civic in Tala, you know, he and I have had a number of lovely coffee chats just over the years, as you do, yeah. and he directs opera, and he said to me, listen, I will send a letter of introduction to you and Fergus Scheel, um, the artistic director of INO and you know that's that's what I can do to help and it turned out that within not too long after that um, there was a position as assistant director on a new opera that INO was creating this was not 2019 Mm. Um, this was one of the wonderful moments of 2019 and they were they were looking for an assistant director it was a piece called least like the other which is about Rosemary Kennedy, JFK's sister, who um, received a lobotomy under various complicated uh, circumstances. Um, And it was a new opera being created by the extraordinary artists, Nisha Jones and Brian Irvine. Mm. And I, you know, I'm almost like welling up with tears talking about them because they're such amazing people. And again, this idea of kindness and generosity was at the core of that. and so I assisted on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to know INO through that. So I worked on that. That premiered in the Galway Arts Festival in 2019. Um, it was meant to come back in 2020 to okay. Galway. Okay. Um, we re-rehearsed it. We did all the things. We teched it. And then everything <laughs> shut down. This oh, was no. September, September-ish, October-ish, 2020. Okay. Um, we were up, you know, there's so many stories of this. I remember we were up in Belfast 
which is where we could tech it for various reasons because there was okay. lots of different speaker and video and lots of stuff that we we were working in this big warehouse in Belfast and that day all the news came through and it wasn't going to happen so anyway but I did I again worked with INO in that capacity um, we spent that time together we did record the opera in a beautiful video version okay and then um, later that year I had the opportunity to direct one of the micro operas, mm. mini operas uh, that INO did, 20 Shots of Opera. Yes, I saw those. And, oh, and so, you know, first of all, right, this is one of these examples of the nooks and crannies of restrictions and opportunities and yeah. really brilliant creative thinking by absolutely owners, right yeah, so yeah they had this they had this budget that was supposed to be for a very large production they were going to be doing I believe at the gaiety okay. it couldn't happen because of the restrictions but what did they do they said number one um, as you probably are aware, y y Shimsa, I'm sure, took advantage of this. There was that loophole in the restrictions where you could gather together under um, COVID safe circumstances to record something for public dissemination. Yes, yes. So, right, so many of us had these opportunities to work with film or recording in one way or another because of this loophole. Mm -hmm. So here we were, 20 directors, 20 composers, all of these people, many of whom had never worked with opera. Um, and, you know, it was the first time that I was directing opera myself. Um, many of the designers, it, it, a lot of us, it, probably most of us were new to film or mm -hmm. relatively so. Sure. All of these possibilities that we were given all of a sudden. And I worked with Jen Kirby, who is a fantastic Irish composer who is based in Scotland. Mm. Um, but, oh, wonderful woman who, of course, pandemic life, I've never met in person. Yeah. Um, but wow. we've had wonderful collaboration with this and wonderful chats. And so I worked on that. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Gavin and Ave Kelly were the two um, performers in that piece. And I got to work with Ave again then the following year, 2021, Ayano asked me to direct um, a, a slightly longer piece of about 20 minutes, uh, a film piece of an opera with, with music by Amanda Fieri and a libretto by Megan Nolan, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, Amanda's showcase piece because she had been part of INO's studio. Oh, I see. Yes. INO's seeds program, right? For yes. opera artists. Yes. And Ave, Kelly, and Rachel, who were the three women performers in that piece, were all part of that studio. Okay. Well. Amazing. And um, so I got, so I went from the like seven yes. minute piece, um, <laughs> micro opera, to about the 20 or 22 minute piece of Amanda and Megan's which Brilliant. was extraordinary. It's mm. called A Thing I Cannot Name, which we filmed. We we wrapped on that the night before I came down to Shimsa. Ah, yes. Um, okay, okay. And yes. you just opened another opera in, in Dublin. Yes. So this is with the extraordinary opera program at the Royal Irish Academy of Music, mm. which the visionary, I know I'm using lots of superlative adjectives but they are warranted yes. the, the extraordinary visionary Kathleen Tynan runs this opera program and she has spearheaded this now I think 12 year long program of these opera productions which are in collaboration with with the design students at IADT oh amazing so you get this massive extraordinary cast of the trained opera students from Riem's program. And then you get this massive, unbelievable team of designers and makers mm. coming out of the costume design, the set design and the hair and makeup design programs at IEDT. And so we have collaborated over the last many months mm. on Henry Purcell's uh, opera King Arthur with a libretto and, and text by John Dryden you know, again, going back to everything we've been talking about with collaboration, Yes. you know, first of all, okay, the design students and the performance students, they have been students um, during the pandemic. That mm -hmm. has been the large part of their training. Yeah. So either in the execution of design in concrete design work yes. or in concrete live performance uh -huh. work, yeah. both, both of those groups of students have been incredibly restricted in what they've gotten to do as part of their education. Sure. So here we are, in this process where all of these people who are entitled 
to get their chops with this work are, mm -hmm. are getting their teeth into this. And it was very important to me that it was a collaborative process. You know, again, with the students, you know, I think it's really important to establish a precedent from a teaching artist who's a working professional to go, mm. you can create something which is successful and people have responded really well this week. Mm. Good. Like, and that's really lovely. You can create something that is that is high quality, that is received well, um, but that it was also made mm. in a way that, that maintained and protected and celebrated the dignity mm. of each of the people involved. Yeah. And that that's not weakness, that's not indecisiveness, mm. that is, in fact, a very rigorous kind of presence. Mm. Yeah, you know? Yeah, for sure. And how it should be. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, wonderful. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Aoife. Thank you, Joanne. That was a great conversation. <laughs> Well, I, I feel the same. I really appreciate this. Thank yeah, you. it was lovely to talk to you. And thanks for being so honest and sharing so much. I'm not sure if you had a piece of text that you wanted to share at all or. I was thinking about this. And again, I hope I, don't, I, hope I don't tear up too much. But there was a piece of text, uh, which is not from anything I've worked on, but okay. something which I think is very beautiful and important. Mm. And it's the words of somebody who we lost this week mm. which is um andre leon talley oh yes yeah you know the yeah. great great fashion editor but so much more than that. yeah for sure um, for sure and again someone who was rigorously and unapologetically kind lovely and from his book the chiffon trenches um which again was something i got to experience over lockdown I listened to it in the first spring and summer um, audible. I highly recommend it. He reads it and his oh, voice is unlike any other. And he says this quote, life changes. Life has to go on. You have to keep going. I too am a sinner, flawed and fallen from grace, getting up and trying for salvation over and over. Mm. Beautiful. On that lovely note, we shall finish. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aoife, for sharing. That was great. We should do more of these. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to our podcast, which was edited by Tom Hannafin. To find out more about Chimsa and our exciting spring programme of events, head to our website, www.chimsatira.com. You will also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, bye bye.